there's a famous saying by Albert Einstein where he states, he's often misquoted and, or misunderstood rather, but, um, but Einstein has had this one saying that I thought was really cool uh, to kind of start us off before we do our study in Esther chapter 9. That is, God does not play dice with the universe. God does not play dice with the universe. And the reason in context, again, this is maybe the expositor of me uh, trying to figure out what he means by this, is that um, the, he set this line because uh, at a time in, uh, the, he was debating with these quantum mechanics scientist people, and uh, one of the theories that they had with quantum mechanics is that the subatomic particles uh, observe, or they react and respond differently when they're being observed. Uh, and they're saying like we can't figure things out because every time we look at it, things change. We look at one thing, it looks like here, and when we look another time, it looks different. And this is where um, uh, Einstein responds by saying God does not play dice with the universe. And what he means in that context is that uh, though there are certain laws that are set in place in reality um, that are constant, uh, no matter how much uh, we uh, no matter how much we, you know, we live in postmodern world, no matter how much we think that that's not true, uh, Einstein believes otherwise that you and I live in a world that, you know, at least with the, you know, the physical matter of the world, there are there are laws that are set in place that doesn't change just because we look at it or not. And Einstein himself is actually not uh, a Christian. That he acknowledges he's an atheist, but even he acknowledges that there are things in life that is not random. And uh, and what is so interesting about his line is that he's actually more accurate than he than he knows. Even though he doesn't acknowledge God, he actually has said something that's absolutely true: that God doesn't play dice with the universe. God is absolutely in control of everything. Even if he quote unquote plays dice, he rolls the dice and he sets it in place. He knows exactly how to toss it and he lands it exactly where it needs to be, because that shows the power of our God. But as we get to Esther chapter 9, this is toward the end of the story, and the Jews are celebrating. Uh, and we're going to see the institute, this, uh, this celebration gets um, instituted by the Jews. Um, if you recall, throughout this whole book, uh, the Jews were being uh, targeted by Haman because of his hatred towards Mordecai. Mordecai didn't, didn't obey him, and he didn't honor him, and as a result, he decided to exterminate all the Jews. And through a series of serendipitous, seemingly random events, um, Esther was placed in a situation where she has influence um, to, to change the course of uh, the edict that was established by the Persians. The Persians said that uh, whenever an edict is made, they are not allowed to change it. So Esther and Mordecai, after getting rid of Haman, decide to make a new edict that allows the Jews to protect themselves. So we find ourselves in uh, chapter 9 with the Jews beginning to defend themselves and as well as starting uh, this, this holiday called Purim. Or Purim. So we'll, we'll, I'm just going to walk through the text and just kind of make some observations. Uh, and we're going to go through the entire chapter 2 as well. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now the 20th, in the 12th month, that is the ninth, that is the month Adar, on the 13th day when the king commanded the edict brought to be executed on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them. It was turned to the contrary, so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. This is, again, we see this thing called the Great Reversal. I think the ESV actually translates 
and uses the word reversal instead of turn to the contrary, that things uh, were no longer as it seems. What was once one way is now backwards. The Jews were hunted, and now they're hunting those that wanted to kill them. Verse 2, the Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the province of King Ajiharis to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all the people. And you have to understand that the, the people in Persia were nervous because of what happened to Haman. Haman was hanged in the gallows, and people see, uh, saw what happened to him, and they're petrified by what happened. They realize now that their queen is, uh, is a Jew, and... Uh, and even and probably those who had maybe were preparing weapons uh, before are now being taken out. Even all verse three. Even all the princes of the province, the satraps, the governors, and those who were doing the king's business assisted the Jews because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the king's for the man Mordecai became greater and greater. Thus the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword killing and destroying and they did not and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. So the Sidovsus of the Jews killed and destroyed five hundred men and uh Parshiantia, Dalphon, Athia, Portia, Adalia, Ardithia, Parmathia, Arsia, Ardia, Vi Vizathia, the ten sons of Haman, the sons of the son of Hamadiath, the Jew the Jews' enemy but they did not lay their hands on their plunder. And you'll see this last phrase, they did not lay their hands on the plunder. It shows up in verse 10, 15, and 16. And that is significant because it shows you that the Jews did not kill these people because they wanted to gain any profit. The reason why they killed these people is because of their hatred towards them. And you have to remember, in, again, in the context of what's going on, the edict is still in play, uh, and um, they can't override it. What's set in place is still there, so there's still people that think they can still, like legally, they can actually still kill the Jews. But now there's another legal uh, precedent that those who attempted to kill the Jews can fight back. So this is what's going on. Um, there's this, both these laws are happening exactly at the same time. Um, verse 11. On that day, the number of those who were killed at the citadel in Susa was poured to the king. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and 10 sons of Haman at the citadel in Susa. What then have they done in the rest of the king's province? Now what is your petition? It shall even be granted you. And what is your further request? It shall also be none. Then said Esther, If it pleases the king, let tomorrow also be granted to the Jews who are in Susa to do according to the edict of today. And let Haman's 10 son be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded that it should be done so, and an edict was issued in Susa, and Haman's ten sons were hanged. Um, the Jews who were in Susa assembled also on the fourteenth day of the month Adar and killed three hundred men in Susa, but they did not lay their hands on the on the plunder. So the queen basically asked for another day, like, okay, in case there are still some uh, people that, are, that want to kill the Jews, there's still, there's still some remaining. Let's have this extend for one more day. And then the king's like, okay, go go for it. And uh, as a result, they were able to kill uh, 75,000 more of those people. Uh, actually, well, that was in verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's province assembled to defend their lives and rid themselves of the enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not lay hand on their plunder. This was done on the 13th day of the month, Adar, and on the fourteenth day, they rested and made it 
to the feasting and rejoicing. The Jews who were in Susa assembled on the, ninth, on the 13th and the 14th of the same month, and they rested on the 15th day and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. Therefore, Jews of the rural areas who live in the rural towns make the 14th day of the month Adar a holiday for rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. Then Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month, Adar, and the 15th day of the same month, annually, because on those days the Jews rid themselves of the enemies, and it was a month which was turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into holiday, and they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So all this is saying is that uh, the Jews um, were celebrating after having victory, and and Mordecai thought, you know what would be a good idea if we made this into an official holiday? Um, so that's what he did. He, 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 he makes this uh, decree now that every single year uh, they will celebrate this, and how they will celebrate this is through uh, giving of food and rejoicing and sending gifts to one another and giving gifts to the poor. Now, it should be noted that Purim uh, is... It's a holiday, it's actually the only holiday that's mentioned in the entire scriptures. This is the only place it has it. In fact, some would argue that this, that's the point of the book of Esther. Why are Jews celebrating this holiday? It's because the entire uh, celebration is to remember what happened here in the book of Esther. Um, it's designed to show God saving them in, in, in providential means, even though they didn't acknowledge God. Now, what's also different from this feast, as opposed to all the other feasts that we see in the book of Leviticus, is that the book of Leviticus, those feasts are, one, is established by God, but two, those feasts uh, involve um, putting off of things, involves like fasting, involves giving things up. This is the opposite, where there's like overindulgence, uh, where you would get things and give things and then just basically celebrate. Um, and this is still in, celebrated today in, uh, in Orthodox Jewish culture. They still celebrate this, and how they would usually celebrate this they would read through this whole book, and every single time the word Haman shows up, they'll rattle this little thing, uh, or they'll boo, and they'll, uh, they'll say, uh, you know, like, um, basically they'll just boo and, and, and make fun of the name of Haman. And uh, the moms, the grandmas of the home will usually make these little um, kind of like bread or little cookies, and they call it Haman's ear. Again, this is it's designed to humiliate Haman. Uh, so but what I find the most interesting and I'll get to maybe more throughout this week, is that the Jews celebrate this holiday more now, and they seem to hold this to higher higher than some of the ones that God has ordained. You know, like, the Jews aren't celebrating Yom Kippur or anything like that. They spend a whole year, and you never see them mentioning any of the other feasts. Rather, they they put this feast as almost like the supreme feast over everything else. Verse 23, thus the Jews undertook what they started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the son of Hamadiah, the Agagite, the adversary of all the Jews, had schemed against the Jews to destroy them and cast purr. That is, a lot to disturb them and destroy them. But when it came to the king's attention, he commanded by letter that, that his wicked scheme, which he had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. So this is just basically a summary of, of why they celebrate this um, uh, holiday. Therefore, they call these days Purim, after the name Pur. And because of the instruction in this letter, both what they had seen in this regard and what they had, and what had happened to them. 
So the word per basically means the, uh, lot, like 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 casting of lot, like singular. In Hebrew, the word im, or rather, I guess Aramaic, the word the im at the end of uh, per makes it plural. So it's like lots, like plural, um, like a celebration of random lots. And I'll explain why that is significant uh, more, at least more theologically later on. Verse 27, the Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and for all those who allied themselves with them so that they would not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulations and according to the appointed time and appointed time annually. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. And these days of preem were not to fail from among the Jews, or their memory fade from their descendants. Then Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, and with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter about Purim. He sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of kingdom Majahers, namely words of peace and truth, to establish these days of Purim at their appointed time, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established for them, and just as they had established for themselves and for their descendants with the instructions for their times of fasting and their lamenting. The command of Esther established these customs for premium, and it was written in the book. So this, uh, again, this is kind of like the the first uh, premium holiday. You see the origins of it and the reason behind it. Um, and that's significant because, again, these things were designed so that people can remember uh, why uh, they celebrate. That's why uh, they do these things uh, throughout the entire Old Testament. There's a, they, they may not have these different holidays, but there are these different Ebenezers or different um, things that they would use to remember uh, what the Lord has done for them. Um, but as we walk through the an application this week, I just have several questions that I want to ask, and I'm going to answer them as we go through it. Uh, the questions for us this week to think about is this. Uh, why do we do what we do in the church? It's a very basic question, but I think uh, this book or this, this chapter really reveals the insignificance of why we do what we do in the church. Second question is, um, how does one make decisions in life in light of God's sovereignty? Um, again, this is one of those like human responsibility versus free will, and I think the Bible answers clearly on how we can do that, knowing that God is sovereign, there are certain principles that we can, biblical principles that we can apply to our lives um, that can help us make decisions. Um, fourth, how are you holding uh, the, how are you holding the line? And by that I mean, are you entrusting the things that you've learned to the future generations? And how are you doing in that sense? And the last question is to kind of echoes what uh, Einstein said. But I'm going to change into a question. It says, does God play dice with the universe? And it's a rhetorical question, but I think this question is actually a profound question if you look at the text a little bit more in detail, which we'll get to in this coming week. All right, look forward to the study. And, uh, uh, yeah, I look forward to going to the study with you. Take care.